this has just brought a lot of people to the understanding that we cannot live the way we are. There are a lot of job losses. People are not able to put food on the table. And it has created that climate, basically, where people are saying enough is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Equals. This is Max. Welcome, everyone. This is Nabil. That was Wafa Abdurrahman that you just heard in our introduction. She's an amazing activist in South Africa involved in the protests over there. On this episode today, we're going to be listening to her. We're going to be talking to a school teacher in Malawi, to a security guard in London, all about this extraordinary cost of living crisis that our world faces right now. And Max, just looking at the news coverage between this episode and the last, it's just mind-boggling to see across the world how this isn't in the news enough. And, you know, you contrast that, for example, with the news about, you know, the Queen and the monarchy. It really gets you thinking. Yeah, I think, uh, and I think there's some truth that the kind of media across the world is often owned and run and prepared by people from, you know, near the top of society. Uh, so, you know, the, the stories of ordinary people struggle to get through in any normal uh, time. But I also think there's something about the nature of this crisis where you've got like a billion personal tragedies, family tragedies being played out worldwide, all all mini stories of their own, if you like, where families are having to face impossible choices between heating their homes or having enough food to eat. So, yeah, I mean, it, it really isn't making the news, but it is an enormous crisis going on in every country. I guess with our with our media empire here of, of the Equals podcast, we can try to redress that balance a bit. <laughs> yeah, with our media <laughs> empire. I mean, but, you know, definitely, you know, if we can do anything, we should use this this platform of Equals to give space to, to other voices and other stories. And that's that's what we're going to try and do today. Absolutely. And it is easy to sometimes repeat this word crisis, isn't it, Max? So, dare I say you've been around a long time, more than some of us millennials, Max. How, how big is this moment? Well, I wasn't quite there for World War II. Uh, but yeah, I have <laughs> been around quite a lot longer than you. And I mean, you could probably tell that I've got a certain maturity about me that comes with sure, experience. Sure, yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, but I mean, Certainly for me, uh, in my adult life, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, we had the financial crisis, it's true, but this this is like a a kind of combination of crises, which is just so dramatic and so profound. I think it's very, very hard to exaggerate the scale of what's going on worldwide. Nine out of 10 countries are slipping backwards on a range of different indicators of progress. That's so sad. You know, all of this progress and getting kids into school being eroded you know the life expectancy in the US has declined by something like seven years it's really dramatic so yeah it's really really bad yeah absolutely absolutely so look let's go with our first interview to Malawi yeah Malawi I used to live and work in Malawi and uh, the interview is with a friend I made there Nelly and we've known each other ever since she's a school teacher and she gives a great interview talking about what it is to live in Malawi today So Nelly, thanks very much for talking to us today. So we've been talking a lot recently uh, and over the years, you know, we've had some tough times in Malawi, haven't we? But how does it compare, you know, the rising prices and, and, and the situation at the moment? In the past years, though life was a bit difficult, but it, it, it can't be compared to life due to the pandemic of COVID-19. Since COVID-19, my family has faced a lot of challenges my husband has been dismissed from work since 2019. Up to now, he's no more working. We have to depend on my salary, which is a primary teacher salary. 
So life is being very difficult since 2019 because the salary I'm getting is not enough to reach the needs of my family. I have a mother who is a widow, which I also need to support from my little salary, and my sister who is also at a school, a secondary school, which also needs my salary to be helped with. I have to pay the bills, water bills, I have to pay electricity bills, I have to, uh, to buy fuel in terms of charcoal, as electricity is also unreliable. We have to pay for the groceries, medical things like uh, private hospitals, whereby we cannot even afford it to go to uh, government hospitals because most of the times the government hospitals don't have enough medications. I'm just depending on the salary which I'm getting, which is 150,000 as of now. I think 150,000 quite probably about what $200 or something a month, something like that. I'm not sure. It's 150 to $180. Okay, $150 to $180 a month uh, yeah. as a primary school teacher. So give me an example of some of the foodstuffs where the prices increased. The common foodstuffs, which we depend on, for example, what we need for breakfast, like sugar, bread, these have risen to the prices whereby even if I am working, I cannot be able to buy them in a daily basis. I have to go, to go for other localities, which have also gone for higher prices making life to be very expensive. What are your coping mechanisms? I mean, are you having to cut back on some food, having to do things differently? Uh, occasionally, uh, in the past years, I've been cultivating uh, maize, enough maize that, and surpluses that maybe I can sometimes sell during the month so that maybe I can cut some of the bills which I have. But due to the rising prices of fertilizer, in the two past years, it has also been very difficult to produce enough maize. In the two years, above 2020 to 2022, I haven't harvested as it is supposed to, due to rainfalls as well as to the uprising of fertilizers, in which on my salary, I cannot even be able to buy even a single bag of fertilizer. You mentioned also the weather. Do you feel that the weather is changing? And what do you think about climate change? There's a high impact of climate change in Malawi because Recently, the weather conditions have been abnormal. Normally, we have to receive the normal rains from October to April. But nowadays, we are only having a short period of uh, weather conditions. Like this year, we received rains from January to March, which was also not uh, conducive for uh, growing crops. So many crops haven't done well. Even the Dimba uh, crops, they haven't done well. So it means that if we, with that, such a scenario, with many people not working, as my husband is, it means that life has to be very, very difficult. Is it particularly hard or different for, for girls and for women in this situation? What's your, what's your reflection on, on that? Many women in Malawi are single-parented, and they are taking the responsibility of being a father, a mother themselves, and taking care of the children. And this is a, big, a very big challenge. And for, for example, in our school, we found that three-quarters of the students are being helped by single mothers. So if they have many children, girls in the house, it means that the girls are also affected. It's a community day secondary school, isn't it? So you do get children from quite poor backgrounds? Yeah, I'm teaching at a community secondary school, which is uh, located in a, a rural area, whereby many people are very poor. Our school fees is very, very minimal, up to 13000 But you find that many students are failing to pay that money, meaning that their parents can't be able to afford the money. And sometimes you find even that the children are coming to school without eating anything. 
They'll stay at school up to something three o'clock with starving with, with, with nothing in their stomach. So it's also pathetic because if you find that if they're failing to find something to pay for their fees, sometimes they say, we we'll just come to school so that maybe we can improve our lives after finishing our schools. But our lives are not comfortable. And how can you tell they haven't been eating? I mean, what, how does that present in the classroom? If a child has not taken anything, that child definitely cannot perform well in the class. You find that other people may, but some, some children might be sleeping in the classroom, or sometimes they even withdraw. They say, I can't, I'm sick. They'll sometimes they tell you, I'm sick, I need to go home. If you persist asking them, they'll say, I haven't taken anything. Then I'm feeling as if I should go home because I'm hungry. And even that last night, we didn't have anything. So I just come to school because I just feel like I need to come because I'll be back, backwards. It's not the only one, but many of the students are in that situations. That's really hard. And, 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 and as we said, you know, over the years, we've seen periods of hunger in Malawi. And do you think there is more hunger to come this year? I mean, are you worried? And how does it compare to previous tough times? Definitely. This year, many people haven't harvested as they do. Though there, were, there was this input subsidy program, but many, many people did not afford it to find the fertilizer. As a result, there's poor harvest. So the food prices will be even higher? Yeah, definitely. So it will be hard, very hard. It's very difficult. Yeah. And do you have examples of like really talented students who've just had to drop out, particularly girls? Yeah, recently we had a from two girls, known as Ethel Joseph, she dropped out because she didn't have anything. Her mother doesn't have anything. She's a widow and have four children. Ethel, being the first child, was selected to our school in 2021, and she's in Form 2. Was she so, talented? Yeah, she's talented, and she dropped out. So when we observed that she, was not, she wasn't coming to school, we tried to search for her, so we found that somebody have taken her as a maid at her home so that she may be help her family. Uh, so after discussions at our school, we said, no, this girl is talented. We need to, to get her back to school. So we called her mother and the, and the child herself, and we brought her back to school, whereby she's not paying any school fees. The, the teachers are contributing for her school fees. We paid for her examinations. So the, the teachers themselves have found the money to contribute yeah, to the fees? yeah. Yeah. Even with your small salaries? Yes, and she's back to school now. Oh, there must be so many more talented yeah. people having to yeah. drop out. Mm, there, yeah. there are many, and, and many they, they, they doesn't disclose to the teachers because sometimes they're afraid. They just be afraid with that. If we say they want to listen to us, they, they maybe they will just shout at us. So you find that in, in a term of embarrassment, they will not come. Uh, clearly to us saying, I can't afford this, and because of this, I'm dropping out. They'll just drop out. And we just observe in the class that the child is not there. What do you think the government or governments could do to improve the situation? If the government is trying to implement some laws that will be able to control the prices of commodities, that will much help. In schools, we are having this program whereby they, they are providing porridge, especially in primary schools. I wish this could also be done in secondary schools because it will, mean, it will motivate the students who don't have enough at their home to come to school despite of their, uh, their shortages in their homes. 
recently the IMF were visiting your country. I remember you said to me on WhatsApp you wished you could talk to them. What I mean, what what kind of things do you think the IMF need to hear from ordinary Malawians? My view was that most of the times when donors come to Malawi, most of the times they meet people who are of top officials. They don't meet the people at the ground to see the true challenges which uh, Malawians are facing. To me, I feel that's bad because the person who is, is supposed to tell the truth of what life is all about in Malawi is the, the person who is outside in the village, typically in the village. That one is the person who can tell the truth about what Malawi is all about. Not somebody who is just on the top because they have, they have some privileges, they have a lot of things which they have. So, though they might come from the background of the village, but once they are on the top, they forget about all those things. You know, across the world, the IMF is is telling many governments that they have to cut back on spending, maybe cut education spending, cut health spending. What what do you what do you think that would do in Malawi if that happened? Hi, Malawi is already affected in many areas. So if they cut down some of the expenses, of course, for example, in education, we have a lot of challenges, a lot of them. So if they cut some of the expenses in education, it might it means that they education standard will also go down. If they would ask the government just to improve some of the things they are doing in order to sustain the methodologies which are using, maybe that can help. I mean, one of the problems that Malawi has and many countries in Africa have is that they have big debts which they owe to yeah. bankers and, and uh, creditors in, in rich countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they have to repay those debts before they can spend any money on schools or or health clinics. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were able to talk to these creditors, to these these banks in the north, what what message would you like to give to them? I don't know. If if somebody is owing you some uh, your things, you always need to be paid back. But there must be good negotiations so that these our bankers should understand what we are facing. Otherwise, we can't say we should pay back. They should pay back, but they should pay in bits so that some of the things, they should continue working properly. Malawi needs to be improved. Not only the donors should help to improve, but Malawians themselves also should have the mindset of improving because if we just say donors should do this, that, that for us, then that will not work. Education is one of the things that will help a Malawian to be at a position to understand how to improve. So that's why I'm saying we need to improve the educational standard because if we have more people who are educated, then they'll be able to understand what should be done. Thank you, Nelly. That was a great interview. I really appreciate Thank you. Oh, I love Nelly. I think she's just she just speaks so powerfully. You just want her to be in charge of the IMF. I mean, just, just brilliant. Did you hear the reference to the price controls in there, Max? Yeah, she should be an economist. Honestly, she's she's more creative economically than most people in the IMF. That's certain. There is something to be said there. It was a very powerful, moving interview, especially what she said about the school kids. But listen, Max, I know that sometimes, you know, the crises we face are presented as a poverty problem in poor countries, but they are all truly an inequality problem in every country. And with that, do you want to introduce our next guest? Yeah, so our next guest is Walter. He's the father of uh, my son's best friend at school, and he's a security guard here in London, and he's going to talk about the the cost of living crisis here in the UK. So, Walter, thanks very much for doing this interview. Uh, This is a bit weird. Um, Normally, we're talking at the school gate, and now uh, it's all formal. 
you want to just say who you are for the listeners? Hiya, my name is Walter Thomas. So what do you do, Walter? Security, I work nights, yes. What time do you get in at night? Um, so about two o'clock, half past two. And that, that's, what, five days a week? Five days a week, yeah, sometime I'm going on the weekends. How much sleep would you say you get on average night? Probably two, three hours because I've got three little kids that I'll take them to school in the morning. So I have to get them ready. I wake up at seven, sometimes at half six, seven, to get them ready, then take them to school. Yep. So, so you, you get in from work about two, three, and then you're up again at half six, seven yeah. to get the kids. You have three wonderful children, I might add. But yeah, that's that's a that's a big load, isn't it? I mean, this interview is really just about the impact of rising energy and food prices and just stuff going up. But tell us a little bit about COVID first. I know quite a lot of people, a lot of friends that lost their jobs. But um, I was still going in through COVID. The bank was paying for a taxi. You know, I was getting picked up from home. Then they'll bring us back home. When did you start noticing kind of prices going up? When you think of the essentials and you're shopping, what, what have you noticed in like the last... Was it like six months ago? Yeah, everything's just shoot up. Probably before I was spending like £50 every two weeks. Now I'm spending like £65, £70 every two weeks. It's not right. It's just crazy. And it's going to get worse, apparently. Yeah, I think it probably yeah, will. Yeah, it's going to get worse again, they said. And what does that mean for your family? Cut back on a few things. Cut off my sky. Um, well, that's hard for you. That yeah. means no football, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, so no football. And... <laughs> exactly. Listen, listeners, for the record, Walter yeah. used to be a professional footballer back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got rid of your car as well, didn't you? Yeah, got rid of my car, yeah. And tell us about electricity. So I used to put, what, 20, 25 pounds. That used to last me two weeks and a few days. Now I'm charging every four or five days. I'm after after put money in my in my electric, so I'm putting twenty pound in it. It don't last. It don't even last for five days. And it's, wow. and it's gone. That's Prince. a big big difference. And I think when the winter comes, it is going to be hard for everyone, isn't yeah, it? Because yeah. I mean, I think um, yeah, it's not not easy. But I mean, well, I mean, one thing you said to me the other day was um, it might be hard for for people here in the UK, but it's. Particularly hard. I mean, you you've got family back in Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone you know. Yes. So you you also know the reality there. So tell us a bit about your your thinking on that one, then. It's really tougher than people out there because I've been out there a few times. That's where my mum and dad from. Or that's where I'm from as well. Every day it's just tough for people. There's no jobs. Kids ain't got no food to eat. People are starving, and you know. And have you heard from family out there about rising prices yeah, and same rising thing. foods? Yeah, yeah. My brother says rice has gone up. Petrol as well, that's the main thing. Everything has gone up back home as well. And it's sad, people are struggling. And Do you get a lot of messages, people asking for help? Yeah, and... all the time, you know, cousins, uncles, and that's a normal thing anyway, but it's just worse now. It's really, really bad. Yeah, and I imagine they, they think of you as the rich guy yeah. in, in Britain, don't exactly. they? Exactly, and I'm just, yeah, I'm trying my best. I'm struggling myself, but, you know, yeah, it's not easy. What do you think the government should do to help with rising prices? Do you no, think there's I anything think they could should, do? They should think about the people, you know, because there's lots of people out here ain't got a job and lots of people struggling, depression and all sorts of things. Them keep raising the price. It's not going to help people. All right, listen, thank you, Walter. That was perfect. Great interview, Max. There's an analysis that needs to be heard, right? Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Walter's a great guy and a, and a good friend. And now we're going to hear, finally, from Wafa. She's the uh, national uh, coordinator for the Fight Inequality Alliance in South Africa. 
The Fight Inequality Alliance is a global movement. It's amazing. Check it out if you haven't already. And yeah, we're going to hear from her talking about the cost of living crisis in South Africa. Absolutely. And Wafa Abdurrahman, what was great speaking to her as well is that, you know, she's a force of nature. She's been part of the struggles over the years um, in South Africa for social justice and against inequality, but also very much core to the protest movements taking place right now. So let's go over to her. Wafa, it's been really interesting, my sister, to watch from afar to see how movements in South Africa have been responding to this cost of living crisis. I welcome you onto the podcast and I start by asking, how did these protests come about in South Africa and why have they come about now? South Africa's economy has been in decline since 2008 with the financial crisis. And then it's been exacerbated, you know, by all the austerity measures and things that are happening in our economy. And this has just brought a lot of people to the to the understanding that we cannot live the way we are. There are a lot of job losses. People are not able to put food on the table. And it has created that climate, basically, where people are saying enough is enough. The South African Federation of Trade Unions, which is SAFTU, made a call for mass action against the high cost of living. And the invite was extended to us, as well as about 150 other civil society working class formations across the country. So as Fear South Africa, we've always been, we have been part to the formation of the Working Class Summit, which is under SAFTU. Um, and this is where uh, the decision to have national a national day of action or national uh, shutdown was taken to happen on the 24th of August. So with everything else happening, you know, I, I, I think it's just created this conducive environment for mass action, given the fact that many, many South Africans are, are basically frustrated with the high cost of living mm. and the economic crisis that we are currently facing. And as you know, and I think many other people know, that South Africa is rated as one of the most unequal countries in the world. The most, apparently. Yeah, the most unequal country in the world. And obviously, this prompts a kind of inevitability uh, in resistance and class struggle um, because the poor is getting poorer and the rich is getting richer. And, and that's exactly what is happening here. The other thing for us as well that was a great thing is that for the first time, the two major federations, labor federations in South Africa, had an agreement and decided that they're going to support the action jointly, which was a great thing. You know, it's very, very rare that you find them agreeing on anything. So you can see the extent to which this rise in the cost of living has affected everybody and nobody can stand outside and say, no, I cannot participate. How does that compare to other moments in the past? Is there something significant about this moment? I think it's 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 quite significant. I mean, if you know the history, uh, that SAFTU is actually a breakaway of, of COSATU. If you understand that history, for me, that's very significant because there was never a time that they could sit around the table and agree. I mean, let alone march together in the street, you know, on common demands. The worst part is that, that COSATU is in the tripartite alliance with the ANC government. And for them to come out in the street and say, you know, enough is enough. For me, that's a very significant issue. And Wafa, what is what are these movements have, that have come together? What are they calling for exactly? There was a lot of demands on a on a on a living wage and a proper increase for for workers. The demands was around job creation because unemployment for us are clo- is close to forty percent at the moment. And then also filling the much needed government vacancies so that adequate services to communities can be provided. The basic income grant for the unemployed was a, was a major thing as well. 
the issue of decent housing and how housing can lead to job creation, to the need for other goods and services in order to stimulate the the economy, but at the same time to give dignity to people. And then also improvement in the healthcare system, because our healthcare is down the pipe at the moment, the reduction on the cost of basic food stuff. Uh, I mean, the bread, the bread prices here has also been fixed. A lot of the companies that we know of are at the moment being taken on by our competition commission where they are fixing bread prices. Then we also asked for price control on basic services uh, and foodstuffs, that the government should put a cap on the prices to stop the elite and the corporates from putting the burden on the poor. One of the campaigns is also the right to work. As I said, unemployment is quite high. And then tax the rich for the poor to live. This is just a few amongst the many other demands. And I think our critique was basically that we had too many demands and too little solutions um, at this march. But as you can see, people are really tired and, and things are really coming to the fore. What's a, what was the feeling on, on the streets being part of this with these different groups coming together? Just how, was, how did you feel? I think for me, it was just it was a testament to the things that are affecting people directly at this point, how people are, the struggles of people have become much more real now because it's affecting their food security. They're not able to see to their families any longer. It's affecting them to an extent that they're getting poor health care. You know, people sit and they die in hospitals. There's no beds for them to sleep on in hospitals. You could feel that people are at a point where they are saying, no, man, we cannot do this any longer. You know, we cannot be treated like animals. Uh, we are human beings. We need to have dignity. We need to have this. So I think for me, the, there was euphoria around the fact that people, they want to get up and they want to do something, you know, to get themselves out of the situation that they're in. Yeah. One of the powerful solutions you spoke about dignity there is this, F, this you know, real kind of momentum around this idea of a basic income grant what does that actually mean and and how would it work implementing a ubic for everybody is going to be very very costly we know that so at the moment we have close to 1 11 million unemployed in our country and we're thinking it could become more affordable to give it to the unemployed for us it's also not a long term issue as soon as you get a job at a living wage or a job that 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 can put money on the table you'd obviously get off the grant so for us, it's a temporary measure. Our ultimate demand is job creation at a living wage and the transformation of our economic policies and, 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 and system. And at the same time, we are saying our economic system should rather be needs-driven and less profit-intensive. And we believe that it is affordable in South Africa. Because that's something people will ask. They'll think, okay, South Africa, we look at the challenges there, look at the debt. Look at so many. How how can South Africa, some will ask, afford this? So since 1994, post 1994, uh, the big thing was that corporates and the wealthy, their taxes reduced, and the taxes on uh, pay as you earn and taxes on on ordinary people working that increased. So basically, the tax burden was shifted to the poor and to the working masses. So for us, we are saying we need to change the tax system. We need to tax the rich. We need to have a wealth tax so that the money that comes into the government coffers can help to pay for the basic income grant. And as we say, it's not a permanent fixture. It's something that will change from time to time as job creation comes in. The second thing we're saying that the, in South Africa, there's a lot of illicit financial flows. 
the rich and the corporates take their money offshore into tax havens, and this also reduces the income into the fiscus. That's one of the other areas. The, the third area is that in South Africa, we've got a government workers' pension fund called the PIC, which has billions and rands you know, around investment that is just lying dormant there. Why don't they use that as a buffer to support the unemployed? The other thing for us is to reverse the IMF, and maybe they'll say this is very radical, I don't know, but to reverse the IMF and the World Bank loans or to stop future debt. You know, South Africa has a lot of billionaires. There is money in the country that we can use as opposed to going out for these loans. Because at the end of the day, when these loans have to be repaid, austerity measures are put in place. The poor gets affected by it. And, you know, the these billionaires and that become rich. I mean, for us in COVID, some of the billionaires in our country tripled their wealth during COVID while people were losing their jobs. It, it shows you that there's money and money is made off the back of workers. Workers are not remunerated correctly. And at the same time, we're saying there's no money. You know, so for us, a lot of our debt is a historical debt uh, that is linked to our colonial history. We're still paying off our part of the debt as well. So the extortion of wealth from our developing countries in the global south has been continuing. And we're saying that we need to put an end to that. As I was looking into the protests, I saw chants from the time of the liberation struggle against apartheid returning to the streets in these protests. Is there a link there between the fight against apartheid and what you're fighting for now? You know what? Uh, I always say 1994 was this um, euphoric moment for some people, but for others it wasn't because at the end of the day, I always say that we may have gotten the vote in this X on a little piece of paper, but it means nothing to billions of people in South Africa. The fact that we, you may now be able to vote and, you know, raise your voice and do whatever you can do, economically we are still poor. And then at the other hand, this racism is still a major factor within our society. Um, at the same time, there's also a lot of xenophobia raising its head. I think because of the economic conditions that is prevalent, I mean, I, I'm not making excuses for anybody. I don't think xenophobia can be excused anywhere. But given the, you know, the, the economic system that we're under and the fact that people are getting richer and the poor is just being downtrodden further, we will always have these contradictions in society. So, so racism, even though black people are at the helm of government, we still have a colonial minority that holds the power, the economic power in our country. So, yeah, a lot of things still ring very true for people that have nothing and they don't see the, the freedom. How do you see freedom if you cannot eat? Thank you so much, Wafa, for your time and power to you and, and to the struggles that you're fighting for. So thank you. Thanks, Nabil. There we have it. There we have it, Max, folks. Indeed, there we do. And uh, I mean, there are going to be further episodes of Equals. We're really digging into this cost of living crisis the causes the solution so please stay tuned as ever do subscribe do share with your friends and family we're on twitter at equals hope and do join us next time thank you thank you everyone